Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are pressing on in the prophets, and here we have a discussion for you on Daniel chapter 7. We do invite you to click the link in the show notes and become a subscriber to our YouTube channel. We put out weekly videos on Bible, liturgy, and culture. And right now we are walking through the Sermon on the Mount with Peter Lightheart. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this conversation over this passage. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers discussing Daniel chapter 7. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John. Jeff Myers and Alistair Roberts. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. We're in the midst of a series on prophetic literature, and uh, we've gone through prophecy in general uh, in a couple of episodes. Then we went through the book of Jonah, and we're in uh, kind of in the middle area of the book of Daniel. So we've completed the first ch- six chapters over the last several months, taking a couple of episodes for each chapter, and we're really coming to a hinge in the book as we come to chapter seven. Uh, This is kind of a Janus chapter that's looking back toward the beginning of the book and also anticipating the end. It's it's the hinge chapter of the book in in many ways. Uh, It's the last of the Aramaic chapters. Uh, We've said this a number of times, but uh, a portion of Daniel is written in Aramaic rather than Hebrew. It begins toward the beginning of chapter two and then continues to the end of chapter seven. And then it goes back into Hebrew from chapter 8 on to the end in chapter 12. Uh, So Daniel uh, 7 fits with the previous chapters in that respect, in the language. It also fits with the previous chapters because Daniel 7 is picking up on the vision of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. These chapters are parallel to each other. Uh, They're both depicting a sequence of four empires uh, and the coming of the kingdom of God that uh, succeeds his empires and the kingdom that will take uh, take up the dominion and, and authority of these empires. Both That's the theme of both of these chapters in chapter 2 and chapter 7. Uh, and so it structurally fits with the uh, earlier part of the chapter. At the same time, this is the beginning of a sequence of visions. Uh, up until this point in Daniel, we haven't seen Daniel himself having any visions or dreams. We've seen Daniel interpreting visions for Nebuchadnezzar. We've seen him interpreting the, the inscription on the wall during uh, Belshazzar's feast. Uh, we've seen him as a bureaucrat in the in the uh, empire of Darius, but we haven't seen him as the visionary who is actually receiving the visions. Uh, we've seen kings having visions, but now Daniel's the one who's going to be having visions. And that's going to be the case for the remainder of the book. There are other kinds of scenes, but we're not going to have any more of the action scenes that we, action stories that we had in the first half of the book of Daniel. It's going to be Daniel... Uh, praying or receiving visions and receiving interpretations of the visions. He's been the interpreter of the visions, but from chapter seven on, he's going to be the one that is receiving interpretations and needing help to understand what he's seeing. These uh, chapters are not in uh, chapter seven through 12. The last half of the book are not in chronological order. Uh, They are moved generally from Babylon to uh, Persia, but they're uh, reaching back. uh, Daniel seven doesn't follow chronologically after Daniel six. In fact, it reaches back to a time before chapter 5. It's in the first year of Belshazzar that uh, Daniel receives this first vision in chapter 8. And then in the third year of Belshazzar, who's again the Babylonian king, 
Uh, that's when he receives the vision of chapter eight. So those two chapters, chapter seven and eight, are visions that take place during the Babylonian period of Daniel's ministry, uh, but they're uh, during a time period that is uh, simultaneous with the action of the previous chapters of chapters one through six. And then in, in chapters nine through 12, we have two large visions. One begins in chapter nine, it's in the first year of Darius, uh, and then one begins in uh, chapter 10 in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Uh, so there's two visions that take place during the uh, Persian empire. So um, we also have a kind of sequence as we move from Babylon to Persia, we're moving from uh, visions that are depicting political events in terms of beasts. We'll see that in chapter seven. We'll see it again in chapter eight. Uh, and then in the, the later chapters, those beast images fade and we have some other, another kind of uh, a different kind of imagery that's being used in chapters 9 through 12. So Daniel 7, again, is kind of the hinge of the book, looking back to the earlier visions of, of the kings, uh, picking up on some of those themes, but also anticipating the remainder of the book where Daniel is the visionary and receiving those visions. Within chapter 7 itself, uh, I think there are various ways to outline this. Uh, in, in some ways, it divides into a couple of different chiasms, one through verses 1 through 14 or 15 is chiastic, and then uh, verses 15 through 18, chiastic. But I think that uh, we could see the chapter kind of dividing in two uh, with with a, a turning point in verses 16 through 18. After Daniel sees the vision, verse 15 tells us that Daniel is distressed. The visions are alarming him. And then he seeks an interpretation from one of those who are standing by the throne of the Ancient of Days. Uh, and he receives that vision in verses 16 through 18, refer back to the beginning of the vision, the four great beasts, but also refer ahead to the end of the chapter, which refers to the saints or the holy ones of the highest one. So those verses reach both forward and backwards. And then the second half of the chapter, beginning of verse 19 through 28, again, Daniel is, it, he ends alarmed and distressed. Verse 28, he's still alarmed by the vision that he's seen. So we have the initial statement of the vision, Daniel is alarmed. We have the hinge, hinge verses in verses 16 through 18. And then for the rest of the chapter, there's an interpretation of the vision. Daniel's still alarmed at the end of the chapter. So we can look at it in those kind of, that kind of two-panel structure, uh, as well as various chiasms that have been proposed for chapter 7. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to raise at the beginning here is the, the, the significance of the fact that this is taking place in the reign of Belshazzar. And particularly in the first year of Belshazzar, this is clearly prior to the events that are de- uh, that are recorded in chapter five, which is Belshazzar's feast. That's the end of Belshazzar's reign. But this vision takes place at the beginning of Belshazzar's reign, which means that by the time Daniel is appearing in the court in the in the festal hall in chapter five, he's already seen this vision and wonder what kind of effect that might have. Looking back on Daniel five, how might that affect the way we're reading that chapter, knowing now. Uh, what we didn't know before, that Daniel has already seen this vision of these beasts and the horn that starts boasting and so on. It can be helpful to notice all of the cosmic and creational themes that we have here, just to get a, a handle on some of the symbolism. We have a sea, we have heaven and earth, we have beasts, we have the question of a man taking dominion. And these things, I think, present us with the backdrop of Genesis 1 and 2, and help us maybe to recognize the symbolic framework within which these events are taking place. 
Yeah, the I mean, the, you have not only the sea, but you also have the the winds that are passing over the sea, which uh, puts us in mind of other uh, a number of scenes in in earlier in the Bible, but particularly of Genesis one two, where you have the spirit, the ruach of God that's hovering over the sea. So you have a a kind of new creation image right at the beginning of the chapter. Peter, was your was your earlier question about whether Daniel believes that there's a near fulfillment? Of this, I think you know. Eventually, we're going to get to the point where most of this is happening, and well, at least the the major events of verses nine and um, the thrones and the coming of the Son of Man, the ancient age. Most of this is happening in the apostolic age. But um, is there a sense in which Daniel might have thought that some of this was on the horizon here for him? Yeah, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't pointing to a particular way of taking it. I just think it's intriguing that we've read the entire account of uh, the fall of Belshazzar without knowing that Daniel had already seen this vision. And then two chapters later, we find out he had seen that vision. I think that throws some light back on, and maybe maybe that's the way to read it. What, how, how are you thinking of that? As a, uh, How would that affect the way that Daniel deals with Belshazzar if, if he's already seen this vision? Well, I was probably thinking along the same lines as Jeff, that in um, chapter seven, you're going to get this very proud character, this king that speaks great things and obviously oversteps his bounds and kind of brings his kingdom, uh, bring, brings God, God's judgment crashing down on his kingdom. So there seems to be um, a, a Belshazzar-like figure um, in chapter seven. And you could probably generalize that a little bit if you think about the way some of the other kings in chapter seven behave. Um, I mean, we've already seen nebuchadnezzar reduced literally to a beast you know and to behave in a, in a beast-like way um we've seen darius getting knots with these um laws and towards the end of the chapter we get one of these uh uh kings uh, changing laws and and times and so a lot of that seems to be in the backdrop of, of this actual vision it certainly ought to have given him courage to have a vision like this of the of the future of the history of of, um, of God's action in this uh, cosmic uh, story, for him to stand up to Belshazzar seems like, at least after seeing this vision, he's going to be pretty brave as he is in Daniel five. James Jordan has argued that we can see uh, playing out of these different beasts in miniature within the history of Babylon, leading up to Belshazzar, and then after that. The son of man who receives the kingdom is connected with um, Darius. And so just as we see the 70 years or the 70 weeks of years played out in miniature in um, the earlier chapter, particularly in the context of the, um, the lion's den, we have a similar thing here as a possibility where the later history of these great empires are played out not just on the level of kingdoms, but on the level of particular kings that prefigure what will happen later on the larger scale. I want to go back to a point that uh, Alistair was making earlier, that uh, you have this cosmic imagery of a sea, the winds of heaven are stirring over the over the sea, or making the sea stir. Uh, this all taking place at night also, which again puts us back in uh, the early parts of the creation narrative, where you have darkness and water, and a ruach that's hovering over the waters uh, as the setting that begins the formation of 
earth from from the sea the the, the uh, uh, God organizing the earth from that but the, the the night visions also we talked about this in regard to chapter six that uh, the the fact that the deliverance takes place at night when uh, Daniel's in the lion's den and there's a judgment in in his favor there's a determination of his innocence in the middle of the night uh, and that uh, alludes to a kind of Passover event Israel was delivered from the angel of death in the middle of the night lots of lots of Passover-like deliverances take place at night. And we have a similar kind of thing that's set up here at the beginning of chapter 7, where Daniel is looking at these night visions, and in the middle of the night visions, there's a a court set up, and judgment is going to be passed in favor of the saints and against the beasts, and the horn in particular. And uh, uh, so that's, that's again, a kind of Passover deliverance that's taking place at night. Also think of the the sequence of visions at the beginning of Zechariah, uh, the first half, the first six chapters of Zechariah, are a sequence of visions that take place over the course of a night. Do you have those other uh, references here that uh, fill out the cosmic imagery that Alistair was talking about? Quick question about some of the things you mentioned earlier, Peter. What do people think we're to make of this kind of shift in focus in, in what the way in which events unfold now? So, as Peter said, you know, Daniel is is no longer in court appearing before kings uh, it's all less public he, he seems to be a bit of a loner in future visions he's just out sort of near a river somewhere and um, most of the visions here they, he doesn't seem to understand them well he's left alarmed and troubled and we get later some descriptions about how things are sealed because they concern later days which on the face of it, it's slightly odd because, I mean, their prophetic horizon strikes me as very similar to Chapter 2's in terms of how far into the future it goes. So um, th- there seems to be all this you know, sealing and, and and more private uh, things going on, and I wonder what you all made of it. One thought that kind of adds to, to complications, it doesn't answer anything, but it, uh, it makes it uh, somewhat more paradoxical. Because uh, there's one sense in which what, what we're seeing here is Daniel kind of elevated, uh, reaching a, a level of interaction with the heavenly heavenly host and the heavenly court that he hasn't had before. I mean, he's he's seeing the heavenly court, and then he interacts with one of the uh, one of the hosts, the members of the host that's standing there beside the throne. So he's a full prophet. Uh, he's has access to the divine council, and he can interact with members of the divine council. So that's kind of a some ways that's an elevation, but you're right. the The emotional reaction, uh, and his, and also his 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 uh, solitariness is interesting. Uh, I mean, he's he's become more solitary as the as the book has gone on. He starts out with his three friends in chapter one. Again, in chapter two, they're praying for him. By the time you get to chapter six, he's facing Darius and the lions den by himself. So there's uh, there's an isolation. At the same time, there's an elevation, and then, and also the emotional distress is is intriguing. I guess we maybe it's not as paradoxical as I suggested at the beginning, and it's a matter of him seeing more directly uh, these things that are coming going to come to pass, and so because he sees them more directly, that have more of a emotional punch for him. Perhaps that's how we're to understand it. There's there's no there's no petitioning here from Daniel. Uh, prophets often make petitions when they get these kinds of visions. It's a true, he's, he's elevated. He approaches the one who is near him to ask for an interpretation. But, uh, and he's troubled. He's alarmed. But there's no, there's no uh, kind of 
arguing or advising of the heavenly court here. And apparently that's because even, even though he's alarmed at what's happening, the thrust of this passage is that these kingdoms are going to be dissolved and the kingdom's going to be given to uh, the Son of Man, who appears to be a corporate figure, uh, standing in for the saints, the holy ones. And so um, there's a lot to be alarmed at, but in the end, it's all a positive, very positive vision. Uh, and um, maybe that's why there's really no interaction on the part of Daniel after the interpretation is given. When you say positive, do you, do you just mean it ends well? If you just yeah. Mean it ends- yeah, yeah, it yeah. ends very well. I mean, uh, even in, in the middle before it's interpreted, I get we get the idea that's going to end well. And, and the interpretation in verse twenty-seven that the the people of the saints, uh, the people of the saints of the Most High, or the saints of uh, are the Most High ones, however you interpret that, uh, are, they're given the kingdom, and they have dominion, um, and all dominions are going to serve and obey them. That's pretty positive, and and so the the uh, the consternation on the part of Daniel is interesting. Um, why does this color change? Because this is ultimately a good and positive prophecy. Just to underline some of the things we said previously. So in chapter eight and twelve, it said in both cases at the end of the vision, Daniel did not understand, which is quite different you know so far he's he's been the guy who does understand these visions yeah james did you have any thoughts on the on the just the ordering of the book where you have this sequence where daniel is in these settings before kings and then we shift to daniel in isolation receiving these visions did, that that's the question you raised did you have any insight into that yeah that, not particularly i mean i kind of wonder if it starts to concern more i don't know how to put it internal matters so daniel doesn't tell anyone about these visions i guess he must have written them down in, in some way and then they got disseminated but he doesn't proclaim them um immediately and obviously the book transitions back to hebrew and concerns more the, the people of god and so israel and the temple becomes a feature of these later visions and th- all those things are absent from chapter um, two, at least. And uh, as I, I kind of wonder if it starts to involve more mysterious um, aspects of, of the future in, in some way, rather than the externals. Your comment about these things concerning later days, we can maybe think about in the way that we can see something that's quite distant in its broad silhouette or outline but the details that show it much closer, um, those are some of the things that start to come into view in the later chapters of the book. And so well, whereas we see the sketch and the broad outline of these mountain ranges on the horizon, as it were, of, of historical events, we don't actually see the specific crags and details um, in those earlier prophecies. Those start to become apparent later on. And I think that might be what is sealed, as it were, for the later time, Um, that particular close-up view. As for the comment about the temple, it's interesting. There are a number of aspects of this prophecy that, with this vision, that recall aspects of Ezekiel 
So particularly the opening vision in chapters 1 to 3, and then in chapter 8 to 11 with the destruction or the removal of the glory of God from the temple. And in both of those cases, you have, as in this chapter, a throne chariot. And there are various pieces of imagery associated with the temple, particularly originally the living creatures in chapter 1, and then later described as the cherubim in chapter 10. And I think you have the same sorts of details here that if you read this chapter, you'll recognize many of the things from the earlier prophecy of Ezekiel. And in chapter 10, the original vision of chapter 1 is connected with the um, temple itself. So the throne chariot is represented in a sort of architectural form within the temple itself. And so what's going on here could maybe be read against the backdrop of a situation where the temple no more exists, but the Lord is dealing with his people. He's um, revealing himself in the throne chariot and the temple order is still operative in understanding and describing the world, but it's operating more on this visionary level rather than at the level of concrete architectural reality in Jerusalem. I think the Ezekiel connection is uh, relevant to at least an initial impression of the beasts, because that's a prominent part of the original chariot vision that uh, that Ezekiel sees. Uh, he sees the, the the living creatures, which are the cherubim, with their four faces. Uh, they don't correspond uh, to the four beasts that come up out of the sea here in Daniel 7, but there's a there's a numerical correspondence at least. And then of course there's the correspondence of beast and beast. The, the one, the one uh, common animal is the lion uh, and the lion has wings like an eagle when eagle is one of the other faces of the cherubim, but you have kind of a cherubic overtone to the emerge, these emerging beasts that uh, comes out of that connection with Ezekiel. So uh, we've been talking about the, the cosmological imagery that's surrounding the opening of the chapter and, and, and moves on. But we also have, uh, as Jim Jordan pointed out in many different places, we have a cosmologic imagery that is used in political contexts. And so we have the division between land and sea, which is part of the created cosmos, part of the created stru- the structure of the world. But that division between land and sea becomes a, a symbol of political division between the sea of nations and the land of Israel. And that's operative here. Uh, we have the four winds stirring over the sea and out of that stirring of the, the wind and sea come beasts from the sea, which coming up from the sea represent Gentile empires. Later in the chapter, they're going to be described as coming up from the land, which is an interesting variation on that, uh, uh, that su- uh, suggests that there's some kind of, at least they're coming up from the sea and conquering the land. Perhaps there's some kind of link. There's a kind of uh, is- Israelite, source as well as a, a sea source, an oceanic source. Uh, but we have four beasts coming up from the sea, again, matching numerically, at, at least the, the cherubim faces. Uh, and there's a lion, there's a, there's a bear, there's a leopard, and then there's an indescribable beast that's seen, uh, it's not described as having any form like an animal, uh, of any particular animal. Uh, it's described by its teeth, by its feet, by its horns, later by its claws. So we have these uh, just uh, fragments of this uh, fourth beast uh, that we'll talk about. But those are the beasts that come up out of the sea. And then out of those, uh, from those beasts, or uh, uh, as a response to those beasts, we have the setting up of a court 
and the coronation of the Son of Man. So that sequence is a sequence that has to do with the emergence of Gentile empires from the sea of nations, but it also is getting back again to that cosmological creation imagery because we have a series of beasts and then we have one like the Son of Man who's going to take dominion over the beasts and create a human empire, the kingdom of God. Uh, so there's a kind of last Adam motif that's going on here that's structuring the entire vision. Thinking about your comment, Peter, that the beasts are originally said to come out from the sea, but then later from the earth. I wonder if part of what's going on there is what the beasts are contrasted against. So I wonder if initially it's sea as opposed to the land, i.e. the Gentile nations as opposed to Israel. And I wonder if later it's earth as opposed to heaven, so as opposed to where the heavenly son of man is situated. And it's it's got more that... Uh, I don't know if you call it dualistic, but that um, sort of spiritual uh, overtone to it. Yeah, that's a great point because we we don't want to miss the the point that this is a this is the three story structure in in the vision. There's the sea and the land, but then uh, uh, the the crucial events, as you as you're pointing out, are taking place in heaven, uh, and there there's commerce going on between heaven and earth. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, I think that's a good that's a good way to put it. Something I thought we might like to discuss is the contrast between chapter two's vision and chapter seven's vision. So I think we're all in agreement that they depict the same four basic kingdoms, but they do so in very different ways, don't they? Um, the kind of the glory and the luster, the sort of shiny exterior of chapter two's vision, it feels like Daniel is able to see behind that and see some of the more beastly um realities and i wonder if part of what's going on is just the um difference in perspective is kind of reflective of a different person seeing them so in chapter two i mean an unregenerate nebuchadnezzar is basically seeing his dreams crash to the ground everything that he's worked for is um uh shattered by this stone which is really an, an intrusion um in the vision but from Daniel's perspective, his fear is is this beast trampling down the the saints and and mistreating them. And so, from his perspective, the final judgment of the beasts is the climax and and the great thing um, about the vision. And so, uh, I wonder if the sort of yeah the differences in perspective is is literally just between you know viewing things from the inside and, and from the outside. Yeah, there, there, uh, there might be something to that. I, I guess uh, one of the things that strikes me as a difference is the difference between a, a unified image of the four kingdoms as if they're one thing, uh, even though we know that they're going to be uh, chronologically successive, but they're they're uh, por- portrayed as one one object. Uh, and then, of course, you have the four beasts that are coming up. Um, Daniel saying, "Behold, another." I kept looking, and behold, another. I kept looking in the night visions, behold, another, a fourth beast. So you have this sequence of beasts uh, that are clearly distinguished from each other. Uh, the other thing, that I'm, I'm not so sure that I would take uh, the beast's imagery here as entirely negative. I mean, uh, you can certainly have political, uh, the use of uh, animal imagery for political powers that does connote bestiality and predatory. Uh, they can, you know, powers that are predatory. Uh, but, you know, uh, uh, David is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Um, uh, other uh, other animals are depicted in positive ways, 
even when they're acting forcefully and violently, they're depicted in positive ways. You know, if, if uh, a ruler is depicted as a great horned animal that's spearing its enemies with its horn and trampling them beneath its feet, that's not necessarily a negative image if, the, uh, if, that, if that beast is protecting um, the people of God. I mean, that's so the, 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 beast, the bestiality, I think, is more ambiguous than it's not just revealing some kind of wickedness or uh, subhumanness in, the, in these empires, but uh, uh, there's a nobility to the beast that, uh, that's part of the picture. It can be helpful to read these also in terms of what we see in Revelation, where we have, um, we can maybe read the lamb as another beast-like figure, but the um, perfect beast, um, not just as a, an image of meekness and um, weakness, but of actual power. One of the reasons why people respond to the fear of the wrath of the lamb. I think the, another thing to note We've talked about the way that the beasts are connected together. Again, in Revelation, we see the composite beast of chapter 13 brings together elements of all of the Danielic beasts of this chapter, which suggests that in some sense they are a composite whole, much as we see in the case of the statue in chapter 2. They belong to a single entity that is ultimately destroyed. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean... I guess part of the reason why I'm thinking of the beasts in possibly a more negative light than you may be is it's just the progression. Um, it, it's like initially there is the slightly human aspect to Babylon um, in that Nebuchadnezzar is pictured there and he sort of stands on his feet like a man. But as the vision unfolds, the beasts seem less and less able to stand upright so uh, i mean a bear can i guess balance on its hind legs for a, a bit but is is awkward um you then get this kind of explicitly four-legged thing and I, I guess the idea there is that it kind of lands on four legs and so it crawls and then the final beast i mean if, if we do associate it per revelation with sort of dragon-like or, or snake-like things you, you could almost see it as the final extension of of Paul's kind of man and animals and creeping things there, there seems to be this kind of departure from humanity as as the beasts unfold uh, I think you're right especially when you get to the fourth beast which we're going to focus on in the next episode but uh, the fourth beast is definitely uh, a terrifying and then you, and you not only have the fourth beast but you have the horn that is uh, speaking great things and is being judged by the by the court. So, uh, yeah, I think you do have something of that progression going on. But that could be, that also means that if, if that's the case, you still have the first beast, the lion, that has a kind of, uh, at least becomes a kind of human, made to stand up on its feet and is given a human mind and so on. You have a, you have a horn at the end that's a kind of human horn. It's got mouth, it's able to speak, but it's uh, become blasphemous. Uh, so I think, I think there is a, there is a kind of, uh, sequence of degeneration or increasing threat, uh, but that could still be compatible with a more positive understanding of beasts in general. That seems to be the case, especially with the lion, because the previous story had basically Daniel being thrown into a lion's den, and, but the lions didn't eat him. They overpowered the enemies of Daniel, the enemies of God, and devoured them. So um, 
Yeah, you know, it seems like uh, Daniel something of a lion tamer, beast tamer, and maybe he is also standing in for the way the Jews are supposed to function during this time period, because Daniel's advice, Daniel's wisdom, his counseling of Nebuchadnezzar pretty much tames him, turns him into a man. And apparently, if the Jews have this kind of influence over these kings and kingdoms, they're beastliness is turned against the enemies of God and they protect they protect the people of God and don't uh, turn against them and devour them. But there is this progression, obviously, because the fourth beast is not behaving in a way that's protecting the people of God. Just another note uh, to highlight at least at least the possibility of uh, terrifying predatory beasts being used positively. Uh, I mean, not necessarily being used positively, being used as, as images of the uh, of God's God's judgment and God's rule, rather than as uh, rebellion against God's rule. So Hosea thirteen, uh, the Lord is condemning Israel for forgetting Him, and then verses seven and eight say this: So I will be like a lion to them, like a leopard. I will lie in wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of its cubs, and I will tear open their chests. There I will devour them like a lioness as a wild beast would tear them. So you have the same sequence in the first three. You have lion, leopard, bear, then a lioness. But then the last line of verse eight is that there's a beast that's unidentified, just a wild beast. And those are all images of the Lord's action in judging Israel. So I think that you you have the, again, um, the possibility that these beasts have positive connotations and um, particularly in the early Early part of the sequence with the with the be- with the lion who becomes like a man, which I think uh, uh, Jeff is right that that's a kind of summary of the events of Daniel four and uh, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, collapse into bestiality and his rest- restoration to humanity. I mean that complexity of picture is something we've seen before, isn't it? In chapter two, when we discussed the trend from gold to silver and ultimately to iron and other things, there is in a sense a degeneration um things are getting less lustrous less valuable etc but at the same time things are a lot more practical you can do a huge amount with iron that you can't do with gold and it feels then like we're just seeing that complexity here in chapter seven um in some senses the beasts seem to degenerate but they're, they're clearly used by god and there's a glory to them and i mean isn't that just the way of the p- political world and it, it it isn't this monolithic thing that you can sum up simply there are, there are there's such complexity to it there's aspects of the world's empires even now which is so good and positive and flourishing and yet there is underneath it so much wickedness and and kind of, yeah brute um brute behavior and and all, all the rest of it I guess one, yeah, I think that's a that's a good point. One of the things I want to bring out of this, uh, this is a point that Jim Jordan makes on this passage, and also Daniel two, and also just uh, his understanding of the whole period of the exile and beyond. And that is that this is this is a new setup for Israel. Israel has been a collection of tribes. Israel has been a monarchy. They go into exile, and they're under uh, Im- imperial powers for most of the remainder of their history from the time of Nebuchadnezzar to the time of Jesus. Uh, and, and uh, of course, Christians beyond uh, still under the Roman Empire for several centuries. 
So Jim's point is that that's part of that's that's a divine design. There's a there's a new phase of Israel's history where Israel's within this imperial world. Israel is favored by uh, and as Daniel has been by the king the king Nebuchadnezzar by Babylonian king. He's been favored by uh, Darius in chapter six. Uh, we have stories of Jews that are elevated to prominent positions all through the exilic literature. And, and Cyrus in in Book of Isaiah is described as a kind of Christ figure. He's, he's an anointed one who's going to rebuild the temple in the city of Jerusalem. So you have this new this a new arrangement. And if we're looking at a degeneration here, then it looks like it looks to me like we're looking at a degeneration of a system that the Lord had set up. That he's he's given authority to uh, guard and protect the people of God to these. Uh, these cherubic empires, but these cherubic empires are becoming corrupted. And the last one obviously is producing an opponent who's going to attack the saints. So, but the system itself, uh, the system as a whole is set up for God's good purposes. That's, that's the, that's the, uh, that's the political order of, uh, of the exilic and post-exilic period. So we, we've identified sort of to identify the lion. He has wings like an eagle. His wings are plucked, which uh, means he's, seems to be flying and then he's brought down to the ground made to stand up like a man. So I think uh, many commentators see an analogy between that and Nebuchadnezzar's story. He elevates himself. His wings are plucked as it were. He's brought down to the ground is like a beast for a while. And then he's given, given his humanity back. And that's the, that's the starting point for the vision of the statue in chapter two. Also Nebuchadnezzar is explicitly identified as the head of gold. So that that gives us a, a starting point for this sequence of be- sequence of beasts, and I think the a very traditional way of understanding this is that we move from the Babylonian Empire with the lion, the winged lion, the Medo Persian Empire with the bear, uh, the Greek uh, Empire of Alexander with the third beast that uh, is like a leopard and then has four heads. Uh, the Empire of Alexander is split up into different territories following his death. And then this fourth empire, again, we're going to spend our time discussing that last time. I, I think that that's Rome, at least Rome in a certain in a certain phase of its history. Uh, but that sequence is covering the period from uh, Daniel's time when Babylon is still standing. That's when he's seeing the vision until the time when the Son of Man comes and receives the kingdom, as we're going to see in verses 13 and 14. So that's those are the sequence of beasts, um, I think, uh, uh, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. I know that there are commentators that see the uh, sequence going otherwise, that it, it ends, the fourth beast is Greece rather than rather than uh, Rome. Uh, and the Medes and the Persians are split up between the first, between the second and third beasts. I don't think that works as well as the, uh, as the, uh, the, the sequence that I've suggested, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then uh, the fourth beast, which I think is Rome. But uh, that leaves details. I mean, what are the three ribs in the mouth of the, the bear? Why is he raised up on one side? Um, uh, what, do, what are we uh, to make of a leopard with wings? What's being what's being spoken of there? How, how does that resemble or depict the Greek empire? I mean, one thing to note is just a side issue in some ways, but the, verse four, as far as we're reading it, I think, has already been and gone. And so it feels relatively significant that here is um, a reasonable chunk of the vision, which is purely past. I guess part of the reason I'm saying that is because there are people who are very invested in a particular date of composition for the book of Revelation. And 
I'm not personally of the view that Revelation has to be written before a lot of its major events take place, you know, um, and partly because of visions like this that you have in Daniel, where some of it at least is, is, is already gone. You know, on my reading of Revelation, the same, same is true in Revelation, because I think we're seeing visions of events of the first century that are leading up to things that are going to take place shortly after the visions that John receives. So I think there is, there is some retrospective action going on in, in Revelation also. So uh, we have we have the the sequence of beasts comes out of the sea, and then we have uh, uh, Daniel's uh, vision is uh, drawn up to heaven, uh, where the Ancient of Days is uh, taking his seat on a throne. A court is set up. He's coming in his chariot. We, uh, uh, Alistair's talked about the connection with Ezekiel. Uh, we have fire going out before the throne. It's a mobile throne. There are wheels on the throne. Uh, there is fire coming with the throne. Those are all features of the vision of Ezekiel. Uh, and the Ancient of Days is going to pass judgment from the court against the fourth beast in particular. And particularly, I think, verses 11 and 12 focus on the actions of the uh, of the, of the horn, uh, the little horn that rises up among the ten horns on the fourth beast, displaces three and then begins speaking uh, great words or boastful words. And... Um, Verse eleven, uh, the that that uh, figure, the figure of the little horn, is the one that's uh, blaspheming. Uh, he's the one who uh, we we discover later is attacking the saints, uh, and the judgment is being particularly passed against him. In verse eleven, Peter, you you, you asked a question, Peter, about the lopsided um, uh, lopsided bear and then the winged leopard, which yeah. basically we all ignore. Yeah, so yeah. we could um, we could. Yeah, we can jump back in on that if you want. I noticed that. Yeah. <laughs> My own, I guess, tendency in terms of the bear, which seems to be a bit lopsided, raised up on one side, is just to read it in light of chapter 8, where we've got this vision of a, um, is it ram or a goat? I can't remember. It's a ram. Um, and one of its horns um, starts smaller than the other, but then um, ends up a lot taller than the other. And I take that just to be the the Persian side of the Medo-Persian Empire, which um, initially isn't the large part, but it later on is. Even the extent to which, um, in chap- by the time Chapter Eleven comes, Daniel just talks about the kings of Persia. So um, I, I take that to be the um, the lopsidedness uh, of that bear, the fact that it's an imbalanced relationship. Um, maybe the wings and the about the leopard has to do with like the speed of Alexander's conquest um, of the, of the near East. I think that's a fairly um, common view of it. And the ribs, the three ribs could also be the ribs. Paul Tanner suggests that it refers to specific conquests made by the Medo Persian empire. So Lydia first in 546 BC, then Babylon in 539 BC and then Egypt in 525 BC. Yeah, and, and uh, I, I don't know. I don't know enough about Persian history. I don't know anything about Persian history. I'll admit it. The exhortation or the command to the to the bear, who already has three ribs, you'd think he'd be content, but he's being told to get up and get more meat. So there's further conquests of Persia pro- after those three. I'm assuming. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, you, you can identify the three with different um, nations, which the bear, you know, which Medo-Persia subsumes on its way to conquer Babylon, which I tend to prefer as an interpretation because then these are nations which it sort of subsumes and gets their armies and so forth. And so when it conquers Babylon, it already has these three ribs in between its teeth, you know, so it's, it's, it's fueled by those past victories, really. So what do you all think about Jim Jordan's interpretation of the bear and the three ribs and the devouring of much flesh? He has this argument that these visions are not just about general world history and the conquests of uh, these kingdoms of other other uh, nations and peoples, but have to do always with the people of God. So he he uh, brings in Genesis two and ties in with the Genesis symbolism we've and, and language we've seen already, and says that these three ribs refer to basically the bride of Yahweh to the people of God, and also the eating of much flesh has to do with the incorporation of the Jews into the kingdom. Uh, into this, into the Persian kingdom. So not just that they are present and prophesying, but now they become part of it. They they become you know governors. That's it's a fascinating, very positive view of what is ordinarily taken in quite a negative way. Uh, verse five. Yeah, I mean, personally, what I like about that is the fact that it's getting me to look within scripture for the interpretation rather than to trawl through Herodotus and see if I can find a list of three nations that might fit the bill. So I like that side of it. I guess what I'm slightly nervous about is the fact that eating, at least in Daniel, seems to have this negative connotation in that they consume Daniel and his friends in chapters three and, and chapter six and the lions consume the, the others. It, it seems to be slightly more negative. And then I'm a bit dubious about the three as well because and presumably you could have, who would the three be? You could have at least Daniel, Nehemiah, Ezra, Esther, Mordecai. You could have quite a few, I, I thought. I wonder if um, the eating, the, your point about eating is interesting. Um, yeah, I think that that's predominantly the case. It, I mean, it's it's curious that you have um, the initial the initial question of eating comes up, at, of course, in chapter one, when Daniel and his three friends refuse the king's food, and it's a refusal to uh, uh, be uh, at the king's table, at least initially. Daniel will eventually be within the king's um, administration, but he's maintaining this kind of separation at the beginning. And here we're at the beginning. Uh, Daniel 7 is the beginning, as we talked about, the beginning of the last half of the book. I, wa- I wonder if you have some linkage to the uh, to the eating uh, that's, that's there in chapter 1. But I, I agree with the uh, James that the the thing that's attractive about Jim's interpretation is the it you can specify why ribs are being referred to because the and they go back to the Genesis two creation of the helper and um, the Jews are functioning as helpers to these empires. So the 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 response to this takes place it it seems in two different phases. There's the court that I mentioned that's set up. It passes judgment against the beast and particularly against the boastful horn. Uh, And then as he keeps looking, verses 13 and 14, almost like a second phase of that, the court is still assembled because we still have the Ancient of Days there in verse 13. 
Uh, and the Son of Man now is coming up on clouds, ascending on clouds, not descending. I don't think this is a an image of the Son of Man returning. He's going up to the Ancient of Days in order to receive the kingdom. This is the coronation of the Son of Man. Uh, and he's going to be give, given the kingdom and dominion of all of these empires. And as I as I said earlier in in this episode, we have a we have a kind of new Adam motif here, where the the son of man, the son of Adam, is coming in order to receive the dominion of the beasts, and he's going to be the beast tamer. And that kingdom is going to be a kingdom that will never pass away. That point about the beast tamer, which Jeff made earlier, goes quite well with verse twelve, doesn't it? In that here we have the beasts living on after um, their dominion has been taken away. And the idea, presumably, is that they're then tamed. You know, they're, they're then subject to the, the Son of Man's reign. You know, when I was first reading passages like Matthew 24, Luke 21, or Mark 13, and and um, Jesus talking about the coming of the Son of Man, uh, coming on the clouds of heaven, I'd always taken that as a reference to his second coming, his coming at the end of history, his return. Um, but clearly here, Jesus coming to the Ancient of Days. Uh, once you see that, it puts Matthew 24 or any of the other accounts of the Olivet Discourse in its proper context. And you understand now that um, Jesus is talking not about his second coming, but about his coming to his father to receive the kingdom. Uh, it's about Acts chapter 1, where he ascends into the clouds um, and then begins his reign, as Peter will say in the uh, second chapter of Acts. And also it gives us a connection as well with Revelation 4 and 5, where we have an expansion of this vision in Daniel 7 and see that the Lamb comes to the Ancient of Days and receives the scrolls and to uh, execute judgments on the land and in the world, of course, in the book of Revelation. It's, it's, it really does, once you, once you see those connections, it sets everything in the New Testament in, in another context, in, a, in the right context, I think, uh, so that you can read it and understand what's going on um, and not think that there are these prophecies about Jesus uh, coming again second coming, but uh, the importance of the ascension and the session of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.